You've joined us in the Bereavement Room, a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I'm your host, Kosima Ali. Today's guest is Nikwat Marawat, the co-director of Delicate Mind Community Interest Company. He's joined me today to talk about his brother, Shahab, who sadly died in 2017. Nikot, I'm so happy. Hello. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me in the bereavement room to share your story. And today is a really special episode because we're going to be talking about the Delicate Mind, which is a community interest company. That's all. Uh, We're going to talk a bit about mental health. We're also going to talk about gin, and when I say gin, I don't mean gin and tonic, I mean J-I-N-N. <laughs> for, keep it halal, man, keep yeah, it halal. Yeah, keep it halal. <laughs> for anyone that's in the South Asian community and other communities, I'm sure you know what we're talking about. <laughs> if you don't, you will find out. Um, and I also, as some of you are already aware, I love talking about representation, um, so we will talk a little a little bit about what that means. So, Nick Watt, Mara Watt, welcome to the bereavement room. Thank you very much for having me. Very much appreciated, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this with you as well. Yeah. So, your brother died in 2017, and in your own words, wherever you want to begin. No, that's fine. So, it was 2017. And it was June. I was at the time in Selyuk. So I was in my final year of university and I had a student accommodation at the time with a few other people that I was living with. I was in my bedroom and my cousin was in my room with me and we were doing the things that students usually do. And whilst we were there, we were talking and everything felt normal. Nothing felt peculiar nothing felt different everything felt the same Mm. I remember I was in my room with my cousin and I remember getting a text from my mom and it said uh, your brother is not here Shahab isn't has gone out and I thought well it's just Asian parents being Asian parents, just overly obsessing, overly checking as to where you are, constantly wanting to know what's going on. I'm sure anybody can relate to that. We'd probably be listening to this as well. I'm sure you can. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I can. (laughs) Yeah. And so I thought nothing of it. I just let it aside and just responded and continued with the day. Mm. And then I I think an hour or two passed, time passed, and I got another message saying, your dad's gone to the police I thought okay that's a bit concerning Mm -hmm. and I remember myself and my cousin just getting up and getting going down the stairs I remember very briefly talking to my housemate at the time and then just leaving to say that I need to go find my brother see as to where he's gone as I got into the car I started to feel more and more anxious I started to feel more and more concerned I started to feel more and more worried I remember us getting into the car 
driving to where my parents live in West Bromwich mm. and just trying to find frequent places that I think you could have possibly been or possibly gone to. Mm. I remember going to the gym. I remember going to spots that I used to go with him when we were younger mm. or even just places that I thought he would frequent. And then the night continued to go on and on and on. And I don't remember how long we were driving for. And I don't completely remember all the places that we went to, but I remember us being there for a while. And, and who, who was in the car with you? Was it your mum and dad? And just No, you? it was my cousin. So oh, it was your cousin. Okay. We left Selly Oak and it was okay. him and I just driving around together. Okay. Just seeing where we could go. Mm. I remember something in my head telling me I need you to take me here so I asked my cousin to take me to a tram station which is close to my house mm. and I remember us driving there I got out and I felt I felt quite lost I felt like something had gone something had happened and I wasn't quite sure as to what it was but it was a feeling it was something internal and I remember looking outside, just trying to see if my brother was there, and he wasn't. And then I recall getting into the car and getting a phone call from my mom. Mm. And I picked up the phone, and it was uh, the voice of a man at the end of the phone. It was someone from the British Transport Police. And immediately I knew that this was a terrible, terrible, terrible sign. Mm. I remember him very calmly telling me there's been an incident, uh, you'd we would like you to come home. Mm. And I had this horrible feeling as we drove there. We weren't far from my house at all. And I remember just talking to my cousin and saying, yeah, something, something has happened, something has happened, something has happened. And I remember getting, just pulling up, getting out of the car and going to the door and uh, seeing, seeing just the pain in my mom's eyes. Oh, God. And it was, it was at that point I realised what had happened. Mm. The British Transport Police were there, there's two people. They had their leaflets out and it was there. Uh, the moment hit me there and then I had an understanding of what had happened. I've had a feeling of as to what had happened. Mm. And I recall my dad coming home, I recall my family coming to our house and I remember the night being... Very painful. Mm. I remember the night being very painful. And mm. yeah, I remember not sleeping so well. I remember not sleeping so well for that night. I know immediately as soon as that had happened, I'd done what I'd always do, which is just do something. And I remember going online, as you do, and writing something around the lights of you need to talk to people, you need to remember where these things come from. Just again, just directing my focus into something. Mm. And you're a bit autopilot. Um, I think at the time, to some degree, I might have been, but mm. I felt like I was in control. When I write, I feel like I have control over something. I try and be a bit more conscious of my thoughts and why I'm doing something. Mm. What is the purpose behind my action? And so perhaps there was a degree of autopilot towards it, and perhaps there was action. But all I knew is at the time, that's all I thought that I could do. So uh, you say the British Transport Police were there. I'm, I mean, I don't want you to relive this in, 
you know, retell it in the way that you need to that helps you. Um, what actually happened mm -hmm. with your brother? As in, uh, do, do you know the details to this day or you only know what the no, British Transport I, Police told you? No, I know the details. I know, okay. very, I know very vividly. I had to go to coroner's court mm. to go and to go through everything as well. And the truth be told, I don't really want to recall it and I don't really want to have to go through all this as well. I, yeah, know, I know I know how it happened. Yeah. I have the reports, yeah. the memories of going to the place in question as well. Okay. So, so yeah. I'd much rather not talk about it. Yeah, no, of course. And I think for our listeners, that's really important. Um, that's kind of the reality of that grief or when you've been bereaved that sometimes it's really difficult to go back to that place you know the details you know what happened and it's hard to kind of go back there and retell absolutely. that relive absolutely. that absolutely I think quite often people forget that somebody's lived experience and this isn't just mine mm. but anybody's lived experience isn't like a coat quite often other people can put it on and take it off mm -hmm. you can have a conversation with somebody you can have a talk with somebody and understanding with what's happened within a person's life but you are not that individual you do not mm. know how that thing lives with them yeah and of course for the external person for the, someone on the outside of course it is a pain and a difficulty but we will continue living as to where we are as to going to where we have been living our own unique lives mm. and so I think it's very important that it's always understood that whatever an individual has been through is, mm. as, as I believe that you are doing, just generally treated with the utmost respect and utmost care. I know mm. that it hasn't and it wasn't always, um, unfortunately, particularly coming from you know, the BAME community, but we have to make progress from somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think the sensitivity around that is very important. Absolutely. And, and, and how it's approached. Um, so you, so do you remember much about the next day or like, I mean, were there, you know, I know how it is with South Asian families, hmm. as, as soon as the news is heard, it's like, you know, your house is full of people and, <laughs> I mean, you're laughing, so I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm trying to say, <laughs> but it can be completely mad. Absolutely. Manic with hundreds of people in your house and everyone just doing what they can to want to fix or rescue or help or support whatever it may be. Absolutely. I yeah, I recall very vividly. I remember it being. I remember it feeling quite invasive at the time. At least this is perhaps the perception of grief coming from two parts of the diaspora being born in the United Kingdom, mm. and then having relatives and having ancestry within Pakistan and within India. I suppose that it's, it was very strange for me, particularly because this was the first experience I've had of grief. I was 24 at the time. Mm. Or was, I, was I 23? I was younger than I am now. Mm. And I recall just it feeling it's such a peculiar and such a strange experience, having so many people coming towards your house, having the gender division with the front room full of men just all solemnly crying, praying, and then the other part with the women just kind of wailing. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a very common thing uh, to express grief, but they sit together, huddle together and just wail. And I remember that being something which 
unnerved me a lot. I recall mm-hmm. being in my room quite a bit. I recall staying in this room and not really. I moved back at that time to go home as to what had happened. I remember just staying in my room for the majority of it. Some people coming to see me and to talk to me as they do. Mm. But it was a blur. And I remember the days continuing and the nights going on. Mm. And it's strange. I feel, I remember it very vividly, but I feel slightly removed from them as well. As if it was me looking back and just reliving it, even though it happened to me. Mm. And it can be a blur, I guess. I guess that's the thing with grief. When you look yes. back, things look different sometimes or the same or to how it unraveled. Yes. Sometimes. Yes. yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So do you mind if I ask how old your brother was? I mean, was he also at university at the time or? No, he was at college and he was 19. He was 19 and you were 24. And yes. do you have any other siblings or anyone else? It was no. it, Or was it just you guys? Okay. It was just us two. Wow. That's hard, man. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, by the way, you can swear. My guests always ask me if they can swear. I can swear. swear. You Fan- can swear, yeah. Fantastic. I will swear yeah. at the right time. Don't worry. I'll swear yeah. at the right time. When the, when yeah. the moment comes, I'll absolutely take it. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> yeah, because I just said it. And I just thought, <laughs> yeah, and that's hard because you're Muslim. Are you Muslim as well? What's your background? I didn't ask you. Uh, so I look at myself as a semi-practicing Muslim. I think that's the best way that I would describe myself um, yeah. through what I've done post the death of my brother I definitely feel that faith is something which I feel I've discovered and begin to understand but at the same time there are many things to me which at this moment still don't make sense there are many things with me which I still critique and explore and understand from a different perspective Mm. but it's something that I feel is my personal truth Um, obviously Mm. truth is relative to who we are as individuals yeah Yeah, 100% and and I feel that this is something which has in time slowly began making more sense to me and giving me and has given me and continues to give me some form of peace not with everything but everything comes with time Mm. so do you feel with um setting up delicate mind um being part you're the co-director yes yeah so you know that all stemmed from what happened with your brother yes that's correct i had um Many years ago, I'd taken part in a program called Parliamentals. I, we were tasked with um, designing a social action project within our university, within our communities, about something we cared about. It was through an organisation called the Faith and Belief Forum. Mm. And we were, and I would use the term very loosely because she was barely there, so I'm not going to mention her name, but we were mentored by a member of parliament. Again, very loosely, I use that term. Mm. And... It was a very wonderful time. We got to design a project, and the project at the time was around mental health. It was looking at mental health within the BAME community, and it went really well within my university. And thankfully, because of that, I developed a lot of links, and they gave us always access to different opportunities. And Mm -hmm. around about the time that my brother had passed, in fact, a few days before, I was very fortunate enough to go on to the BBC Network's big debate because around that time of June was when the general election of 2017 was happening as well. So I'd been asked to go on and mm. to present a question to a panel of MPs at the time. 
And I did, and my question was around mental health. And after that, I was fortunate enough to make a contact with someone through the PPCH network. Mm. And after my brother had passed, I I reached out to her and told her what had happened and explained that I wanted to talk about this issue within the South Asian community and to talk about my experience and bring light towards it. And she was kind enough to give us that platform at that time. Mm. And so I had given, I spoke for maybe half an hour about my experiences, about my mental health, about what had happened to me. Mm. And it was, it was very cathartic at the time. But mm. I remember coming home and I remember being very restless, very restless, like something still needed to be done. Something hadn't finished. There was more that I needed to channel my energy into. Mm. And then a few days later, I was at my house. I was in my room and my best friend came to visit me. Mm. And he came to my house, came into my room and he said, Nick, what? I need to talk to you about something. And I was like, OK, what is it? And he pitched the idea of what was the delicate mind to me at the time. And I was looking to do something. There was some funding available through the project with the parliamentors. And I remember after he said that to me, I looked at him and I said, that's fucking incredible. And mm. there, there and then we wrote out this application detailing what it is we wanted to do with the delicate mind. It started as a very small idea, as a workshop, as something to put purpose to my pain into. Mm. And it was to explore mental health. And we sent it off and we were, for, again, fortunate enough to be connected to somebody else who also works with us as well. She's currently also a co-director. And she had a very interesting idea, which was somewhat similar to ours. And we spoke on the phone and we clicked and we all thought, this is it. This is something that we are going to do. Mm-hmm. And since then, the story is continuing to be written as well. It's taken on a path of its own something that I didn't anticipate and I didn't expect and something that I I feel and I believe and I understand is one of the reasons that I've been put onto this earth if I go through my life and again I consider everything that I've done and that's happened to me the more that I'm a very introspective person and so the more that I think about this the more I realize that what's happened to me through the basis of my life the more I feel that this is and uh, to excuse the cliche I feel like this is my calling Nah, nah. <laughs> that's not a cliche. I uh, I hear that one hundred percent. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. That's good. That's good, man. That's good. That's nice to hear. Not many people, I think, have came across have a complete understanding of this, and it's nice when people feel that they have the thing that they're being brought towards. It brings a a gladness to the heart, and I think it's very nice when people have that as well. So it's good to hear. It's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's funny that you should say that because, yes, yeah, some people don't, they don't get that in the sense that, yes, they do think it's a cliche. Um, they're like, really, this bad thing happened to you and now you think this is your calling to do this. I, I think sometimes it's hard for people that don't fully understand or resonate for them to yes. get why it is a calling or a reason for why this you know why you go through the experiences that you go through i guess yeah yeah absolutely absolutely i guess it's how people take it on metaphysically as well so whether you perceive or believe in something beyond the material world or what that looks like for yourself is down to each individual person Mm. but as Mm. i've said for me 
since I've continued to do this journey, it's been something which has brought me closer to the metaphysical, which has brought me closer to what I feel is uh, beyond this world. And it's really really humbling thing to be able to continue to explore this journey and to see where it's continuing to take me because it's taking me to some very 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 surreal places which if i could go back and tell my teen self nick what this is what you're going to be doing he'd be like fuck off no yeah, really yeah, really this yeah. is what's going to happen i'd be like yep and just with a completely straight face so it's very 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 strange but in a very good way mm. that's really beautiful actually <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, really it's... beautiful. And I'm guessing your faith is stronger or more reaffirmed, would you say? Or I would say that it's a continuous journey. I feel that for myself, I've been taking lots of classes on the basis of spirituality, spiritualism and science and so on and so forth. And I think for me, it's been something that I've along this journey felt more connected to i feel more connected to something and i'm not sure what that looks like obviously within islam we refer to this term as being allah which mm. is the eternal presence the eternal force but i feel like that same term is applied all throughout history and millennia when you consider uh, the big bang or when you consider the christian conception of god or the hindu conception of gods or even the mm. jewish jewish conception of what god looks like as well there's a term called symbology where this means that human society and human beings we apply different understandings in different languages and different symbols in accordance to which part of the world in which we come from but quite often the symbology and the understanding is the same we're trying to capture the same essence we're trying to understand yeah, yeah. the same thing and i feel like for myself because of the time that i exist in and the skin that i inhabit that this is the symbology which I've been given and the way in which I'm supposed to understand my universal truth. I don't feel that even though I feel more closer to faith or the understanding of what that is, I still don't feel that I am correct. I just feel like this is the right thing for myself. For you. And absolutely. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to understand other people's faiths and perspectives and and comprehend as to where they're coming from and having no faith at all is completely fine as well i feel that all of these are completely valid ways of understanding and navigating the complexity of the world yeah it's whatever your truth is and your reality yeah. yes yeah. yes yes absolutely absolutely agree so nick what you talked a little bit earlier about taboos and kind of stigma in our communities you, yes. you touched on it really briefly uh, kind of talk me through that what you know following on from your experiences everything that's happened today with the delicate mind talk me through what that is so taboo is relative to which community in which you come from and taboos manifest themselves in so many different ways mm. um I was so having this yeah. very interesting conversation with one of my yeah. friends mm. and to maybe slightly go on to a tangent because this is how my brain works, but yeah, also to are. give a little bit of context behind why I'm saying what I say. Mm. We were talking about the conception of Islam. So quite often the idea that there are many people who are imams or at the term that I'm a bit uncomfortable with again in brackets, faith leaders, people who are the individuals to tell you how something is and isn't applicable. Now, quite often, 
what has happened is through the spread of these ideas is they have almost been um, colonized to a degree. So let's consider when we look into contemporary India, which at one point was synonymous with Muslims, in, Hindus mm. and Sikhs living together simultaneously. Yeah. And in fact, in, in 18... Absolutely. And in fact, in 1858, they fought against the British Empire because in the 17th century, they defeated a Mughal emperor and mm -hmm. took over what was at that time what they referred to as the East India. And so a lot of these ideas and traditions and cultures that were passed down at that time within modern day India were alien towards the South Asian diaspora at that time. In fact, um, there's a term which is referred to in India at the time as hijra, which refers to a gender that sits outside of males and females. And through contemporary Arabic and through the Quran, we actually Islamically recognize another person sitting outside of males and females. And the term is called muqanat, and it can be found in various hadiths and various scholarly teachings. In fact, Pakistan, of all places, just in 2018, passed the Transgender Persons Recognition Act. Mm -hmm. um, and they recognize legally that transgender people are tangible and that actual exist as human beings through science and through theology. Mm -hmm. Now, we were discussing the idea of what is and isn't acceptable. So as Muslims, we apply the basis of fiqh, which is the Islamic jurisprudence about what we accept and what we don't. And of course, because there are so many different schools of thoughts and only just touching upon the three that I'm familiar with, is the Sunni, Shia and Ahmadi, which all have their own understandings that people will pass down through different imams and different people who will say, well, this is permissible because of X, Y, and Z. Music is permissible because of X, Y, and Z. And this is permissible mm -hmm. because of X, Y, and Z. Now, when there was a level of colonization, a missionary focus of Christianity, muscular Christianity, was spread all across of the world. And quite often with faith, it's the idea of this is how something is, and that is simply it. When in actuality, the very purpose of faith, and particularly Islam, has been to focus on understanding more about your material world. There's a verse in the Quran that says um, about seeking knowledge and how this is a pleasure. And in fact, that was why you had the golden age of Islam, where people discovered things like algebra. They discovered things like the theory of evolution, which came yeah. from a black man called Al-Jahiz in the 16th century, more than 100 years before Charles Darwin, in which he wrote about the evolutionary method. The circumference of the earth was measured at the time as well. So much science and mathematics and pioneering things that we use today. Algebra yeah. being the perfect example by Al-Khwarizmi, the fact that we are being able to talk over Skype at this moment in time is created by, <laughs> by an algorithm. So the fact that these things still exist were because people were taught to question. Mm -hmm. And that brings me back to the idea of taboo. Quite often, we as South, the South Asian diaspora, and I think perhaps there's a level of intergenerational conflict to conflict conversation that needs to be had around this. What tends to happen is there's a focus on how things are and how they must be, not how you would like to be. Now, within our cultures and within our communities, particularly around mental health, and I'm someone who lives with mental health issues myself, I have done since I've been about 14 years old. I've had the symptoms and I continue to live with the symptoms of depression and generalized anxiety. And it's very interesting because quite often I've always had said to me as I've been growing up that you don't seem like the person to have these issues. And it's always been very funny to me, almost as if there's a... a archetype of how people should be when they have these labels ascribed to them and this is something that was said to me quite often as i was growing up so sorry yeah. 
who said that to you? Your community, your family, or just the environment you were in? Family, community, and the environment that I was in. Uh, what do you have to be depressed about? Uh, was a very common one. Um, the idea that my faith wasn't strong enough that I should pray a little bit more. The idea that black magic had been put upon towards people, which is very common, which is very, very, very common across yeah. the diaspora. Um, yeah. And so I just started to realize that this is more and more of an issue, particularly within our community. Mm. Um, I felt it was very necessary to start driving the social conversation forward. So taboo has been something that I've experienced in the sense of my own mental health issues and other things which I feel that still have a very tight upper lip, particularly because of the spread of, to a degree, colonialism, about mm. the shaping of a person's mind. Um, let's consider that at one point within India, uh, LGBT people, this is something which I'm personally quite invested in as an ally, uh, existed prior towards this as well. And there was a penal code that was changed uh, to basically make being gay a criminal offence. Now, the interesting thing about this to me is the idea that through the law is how you change a person's mentality, is how you change a person's mind, is how you govern what is and what isn't acceptable within your society. Yeah. Now, yeah. the history of colonization has meant that these ideas are still being propagated and still being spread in places like uh, Pakistan. India recently decriminalized homosexuality. They took away yeah, with the yeah. system. But these ideas still propagate. And as a consequence of that, they propagate through the understanding of people's mentalities because the law is how you govern to a degree morality. The law is to a degree how you govern what we can and can't do. Yeah. And when you leave that behind as the foundation of a nation state, and Pakistan in 1947 was also founded on British penal code laws, even though it pushed towards trying to be a more quote-unquote Islamic-focused state, the penal code of the place still exists within that. So what has happened is that the functioning of what you are trying to argue as a completely Islamic and Muslim nation cannot exist because your foundation is built on something that was alien towards you. And that has changed the mindsets of individuals and people, particularly when you examine our history, particularly when you examine our culture, the Ottoman Empire, which was arguably one of the biggest Islamic empires that existed yeah. through all of history. Yeah. In, in 1858, they decriminalized homosexuality and they did so from an Islamic perspective, nothing to do with any Western um, exterior. They took it off their own accord. And so taboo and the idea of this changes through the history, it changes through time about what is and what is and what isn't deemed acceptable. And so mental health is something that I feel very strongly is a taboo, which is slowly changing. I feel it's going to take about three to four generations, personally speaking. So that would be my... Wow. <laughs> Absolutely. But I genuinely think that this is how the conversation, the social stigma will change over time. We have to consider that a lot of these mysticisms and a lot of these ideas come from, and I'm very careful to 
look at people through Orientalism. So India and Pakistan have their own space programs, their own universities, their own colleges, their own educational system, their own functioning government. So we have to be very careful. And the language which I've been guilty of myself is to say that people are simply not educated when the truth is people are more so illiterate. When the illiteracy rate is so high within these places, particularly because poverty is so enshrined within these nation states, a lot of these ideas which we have been very fortunate to be able to challenge because of the level of education that we've been given. Mm. Simply, it simply meant that a lot of rural-based ideas are spread and propagated throughout these countries, and then, of course, they are then carried over from the diaspora into England and then perpetuated as general ideas and understandings of what is actually happening, mm. when in actuality this is not the case. Um, however, I've been seeing a lot of signs where psychiatry and mental health support is improving within places like Pakistan and places like India, and so I feel that social conversation which we are driving forward in the British diaspora is also changing within the nation states, within India, within Pakistan, because people yeah. are driving these conversations forth now. Yes, it's happening slowly, slowly. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I feel that very strongly that it will take roughly about 40 generations because people are already, I feel like we are the first of this generation to really tackle these issues, to really get into the nitty gritty of them, to understand the complexities of mm. faith, your identity, your masculinity, your totality of who you are and how that forms a person's mental health. And let's also remember that research is still being done about understanding the brain, understanding us as people and human beings. The World Health Organization has said that by 2030, that depression is going to be the leading public health crisis in next year. That, oh, yeah. Absolutely. And then next year, that suicide yeah. is going to be the leading cause of death within young people. So, of course, there are issues that need to be critically examined and critically explored in the now. And I feel that by us as the diaspora doing this at this moment in time will mean that uh, the next generation down will have a much more tolerable and understanding perspective. And of course, you'll always have people who disagree with you. But as that social stigma and social conversation starts to get pushed forward and changed, and as the complexity mm -hmm. of identity starts to become a lot more diverse, I do feel that we are, I do feel there is an end goal in sight. Perhaps I'm not going to live to see it myself, but my great great grandkids will. <laughs> and, and we just have to be hopeful yeah a start of something absolutely yeah so i mean you've given a really big i mean that's really important what you've said the history <laughs> no no no. no don't apologize because it's very rare to hear anyone actually talk about how this has all happened via history actually a lot of people that are listening won't know any of this stuff that you've just said about <laughs> our history in India and Pakistan and colonization and the Ottoman and how things are passed down. But in how do you deal with that in current day, you know, with with your experiences with your parents? Because I, I don't know about you, but that would be very difficult for me <laughs> to kind of talk, have that conversation with my dad. It would be a difficult conversation to have with him he just wouldn't see, he wouldn't want to have that conversation with me, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, no, I, I'm not, please don't think for a second that I'm saying that this path has been easy for myself as well, because right. I absolutely, I absolutely relate, trust me, about trying to have these same conversations as well, particularly when it's not a case of me trying to be right. It's a case of me trying to be fair, particularly when these things have happened, when they have existed. It's, um, my concern is people is individuals and so when I refer to these things it's never out of 
any malice of trying to be correct, which I think quite often as people we can try to be is trying to be as fair as possible. Yeah. And yeah, it's very difficult. You're finding the truth. You're just trying to find the truth really I, to yourself. I, I feel like I feel like, and perhaps this is um, some of the ego speaking when I say it, and I'm trying not to be a bit egotistical, but I feel like when I'm saying these things, I'm saying them from a place of correctness. I'm saying this from a place of history. And the and interesting, important history that yeah, has absolutely. been wiped out, quite frankly. Well, absolutely, 100%. And I think the problem is that when you don't know your history, you don't really have a complete understanding of the self. And like I said, with faith being more, comfortable with me is because I started to go back and read more about uh, the golden age of Islam where people were doing things like creating the first university from a Muslim woman in Morocco and me mm. thinking that's insane like I just didn't know that our university yeah, based absolutely our university based education system just doesn't reflect these kinds of things and so going back has made me feel a lot more comfortable within oh, yeah. my own identity and within myself and make me feel more comfortable in claiming myself as being a Muslim because there's so much that's been given to the world because of what this historical lineage belongs itself to. Mm. So being UK, able to... Yeah, but sorry, sure. the UK no, curriculum is, I'm sorry to say it, and I, you know, I said it in my counselling skills course yes. earlier this year, it's not fit for purpose, quite frankly. What do you mean? Well, it's. I feel like for me, when I was at school, I, I didn't know anything about my history. Like... Partition, for example, yes. the history of the Ottoman and things like that, it's stuff that my family had to teach me. It's yes. not something that I was taught at school or I was told about. You know, it was always about the celebration of Henry the Columbus v. or Henry V. Yeah, there you, go. <laughs> you took it right out of my mouth. Yes. <laughs> And huh? that's all I kind of knew about his, like, my, you know, history, but my actual history, no. It's interesting. I feel that to a degree it might have been partly because of the time that we existed in, uh, considering that by 2030 a third of couples are going to be mixed raced and a third of people will be as well. I think that the identity of Britain as a place is changing. The identity of this nation state is evolving into something else. And so, but why, but why do you think it's changing? Is it because people are fighting to have their truth heard they are you know to find out more about their identity and where they're from to be accepted why do you think that is i think it is uh in part due to people fighting for themselves to be more accepted within the curriculum and understanding more about actual practical and tangible history mm. um the fact that i always refer back to which is very interesting to myself is the father of the theater of evolution was a black muslim man called mm. al, al jahiz and so in the 16th century, he wrote something called the Qadab al-Hayun, which refers to in Arabic as the Book of Animals. Okay. And inside of this book, he refers to some objective evolutionary method, which must have meant that animals and people came into existence because of a form of evolution. And of course, quite often that we were told that it was uh, Charles Darwin, who mm. was the father of the theory of evolution. Yeah. In actuality, you had someone who was literally more than a century beforehand talking about this uh, discussing this in an objective method and it's very interesting whenever I bring this fact up to people that a lot of people I didn't know that and I'm like well I didn't myself either for yeah. a long time and it's something that I had to educate myself into mm. so I feel that education 
or the historical system or how education is formed is to a degree it's written by other individuals and other people trying to tell you their own personal truth now as britain becomes more and more diverse as a nation state i feel our history is starting to and is going to reflect this more and more particularly because a lot of people from the diaspora are making their home known within the united kingdom or come from a second or third generation yeah. particularly because of the fact that we had two world wars and we were all part of the commonwealth at one yeah. point people were told that you are part of british society you're part yeah. of the system so to see that is starting to reflect itself in public life so you have a muslim mayor for example within the city of london the biggest yeah. city in the whole of the capital of the uk yeah. which obviously yeah. would have been inconceivable in the time in the 1960s and 70s and 80s mm. but now because of where we are going and where we're moving towards diversity is being expressed not just in a superficial way but within our thought within our understanding and comprehending how these things have came into fruition um mm. just to just to go back on something as well i was having yeah. this other conversation which was quite interesting with uh, one of my friends and we were talking about the climate change which is obviously something which we're very all concerned about at the moment now um colonization actually sped up uh, co2 emission gases i believe and so places like India and Pakistan yeah. and places yeah. like Hong Kong, the Congo are very much affected massively. by climate massively because of the yeah. fact that yeah. this sped this sort of thing up. So now people obviously are changing and coming over from the other part of the diaspora within the safest place that you, like the United Kingdom. So then the argument is very interesting about making um, green-based reparations like green tech to help these people deal with these issues. I remember when I was in Pakistan uh, last year, it was very interesting. Then we were going through the city of Lahore, uh, second biggest city, and um, there was just rainwater just filling up completely and people were just driving their cars through it. And obviously at the time I just thought, oh, this is funny. This is just something that happens within Pakistan. And then as you understand it, when we were like, no. holy fuck, no, that's climate change. That's actually happening within this place yeah. here. People are being impacted by this. Yeah. So it's, you've got to look at it in a historical context to see how these issues are impacting people in those places and actually affect mm -hmm. us as the diaspora over yeah. here as well. Yeah. We need and to our have identities. 100%, yeah. a 1,000%. So we need to have an understanding of who we are as people and who yeah. we are is quite often, I think, within life and outside of just the educational system is quite often dictated to us yeah. instead of something that we have to explore for ourselves. And so yeah. I feel that the education system will in time slowly begin to reflect this as Britain starts to become more of a diverse inclusive. and yeah. inclusive and tolerant nation. There's yeah. going to be challenges along the way. I absolutely, for a fact, know there's going to be challenges along the way. But oh, yeah. I see us changing into something better in front of my eyes, and that's really yeah. nice to see. Yeah, I feel that. the I think it is an education thing. It's like... When I think about my time on my counselling skills course, it was like a life education for so many people that didn't even know their own history. Because mm. we talked a lot about history and some of the things that you've touched on now. And mm. it's happening slowly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And it's very important. Change is a slow and steady burn. It's a hard thing, change, for people, yes. for human beings in general. Do you think so? I think so. I don't know anyone... Well, apart from myself, <laughs> and this is my ego talking now. I don't know anyone that is like, yeah, I love change. Put me in a new environment and, you know, I'll, it's all good. I'll take it on positively. I think 
there is some fear there with change. There's some fear attached to that, or well, that's what it feels like to me. There's almost like approach that with caution mm. because it's the uncertainty, or no, no, uh, in uncertainty is I think just the part of the the human condition about us as people. Um, we're never, I guess, we're never sure of anything completely. So I suppose right. I right. think, but I would, I think, I would respectfully disagree. I think change is. I think change is something which has to come from ourselves and the idea of that we are oh, yeah. wanting to embrace this as oh, well. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's never yeah. easy, but I think it's, it's always worthwhile. Yeah, as human beings, we do need to be kind of part of that. Absolutely. In order for it to, in order for it to happen. Yes. So kind of rewinding back a little bit. Yes. Um, <laughs> just a little rewind. Um, <laughs> so yes all of this is you know it's important and we need to explore it and unpack it as we go along um but how do you explain that to first generation south asian parents you know i know that if i had to talk about suicide with my family it would be it would be a very hard conversation so i'm just kind of curious to know how, how that unraveled for you and your family when you're brother died kind of how did that all you know what was the process like are you able to talk about it a little it's... bit because in Islam you know um I don't know if some of our listeners know or not but it is suicide is prohibited and it's like this known thing so I'm just kind of interested to know how you explored all of that with your family well it was very interesting actually because although within this, the religion itself the suicide as an act itself is prohibited we have to consider the historical context that this was written in, in that time as well so islam or the quran is a live document so this mm. book applies in accordance to what was a time of war a time where the transatlantic slave trade was happening all over the world a time that when france were guillotining people mm. uh, a time in which civilization was still developing where morality or the idea of it was uh, was still developing europeans for example didn't bathe until the 18th century properly the queen i think it was queen was it Victoria? Victoria, who only, yeah. Who only took, yes, who only took two baths once a year as well. Yeah. So the whole nation, the whole state was in evolution, <laughs> is in flux. It's in constant flux. So to go back to uh, the, in reference towards suicide, absolutely it was unpermissible because this was seen as what was in essence and effectively to a degree a form of time of war. Now, later on down the line, we have to consider and understand that as we have begun to understand more about the brain and more about how people are formed and the understanding of how we are as human beings, that one of the fundamentals that we have with inside of ourselves is a very basic evolutionary response, which is survival, which is the idea that we are wanting to thrive within situations, which we are wanting to be okay, which we are wanting to survive. It's pretty self-explanatory. We all have fight and flight and a survival instinct. Mm. Now, when a person, and as many people have done, my brother aside, many people that I admire, many people I respect, and other people that I have known, can get to a point in which they feel pained beyond something that they can comprehend. 90% of people who complete suicide actually have a diagnosable mental health issue at some point within their lives. So something which can show this individual having harm within their mindset. 
And of course, when we do something, when we are not of sound mind and sound body and sound heart, it would go against what people, I suppose, would define as the tenements within Islam as well. And this is what how it was explained towards myself that this isn't something which a person who is in a healthy state of mind would do. And it was very interesting because I had to grasp two concepts, which was the idea that this is inherently true, but the idea that also that one individual, and let's consider that this is an individual case, can get to such a point in which they feel that they are pained beyond whatever reason is within their life in that mindset in that time it will appeal or appear to be a logical decision mm-hmm. so it's interesting that both of these two things are in tandem with one another mm-hmm. and so this is something that we have understood and actually i feel that through the work with the delicate mind the social conversation around uh, suicide and mental health and what that looks like even though it is such a terribly difficult loaded term is and has been changing. I've seen it happen, uh, not in just a superficial way, but through our work. I remember a story my mom told me about going and visiting one of these random Asian relatives' houses you always have to do. Um, Somebody saying to her, and this isn't how it had happened, but somebody saying to my mom that, oh, uh, didn't your son jump in front of a train? Wasn't he boggled? And Bagel obviously oh, mean wasn't, wasn't he insane? And so this was a very normal and commonplace thing that was said by this other individual, this other and, person's removal. In South Asian yeah. communities, that is quite a common thing I hear Absolutely. a lot as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very common. It's very, mm. very, very, very common. And so mm. this is a conversation which has been broached over time, particularly within the beginning. I know that my parents found it very hard and, I wouldn't want to speak on their behalf and say yeah. that because I'm not sure as to how far they are within their journey with it. But it seems to me that more peace and more understanding has come towards this. We always have the term about a lucky Muslim, the idea that this was uh, the will of God or something beyond yeah. ourselves. Yeah. You know, uh, you got to consider where you have an internal and external locus of control, what you feel is within your control and what you think is without it as well. So it's still something that I am making my peace with and making my understanding with but i strongly feel that where i am at this moment is just where i'm meant to be yeah 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 i hear that you're (laughs) this is where you are in your process yes absolutely this is where i'm just even having this skype conversation with you is where i'm meant to be yeah this is it this is it you're you're in the right place i'm in the right place (laughs) yeah so so I mean I you know I don't want you to speak for your parents because they're probably in a, as you say processing in a different place but what you just touched on there a lot of our listeners probably won't know that that is quite a common thing that's said you know the taboo in our community is quite a common thing to say someone's like pagol or you know been taken over by a jinn or something what was your react? Do you know what your mum's reaction was to the person that said that, or she didn't? I don't recall her delving into it so much. I know upset, which is obviously understandable and very normal, particularly because that yeah. happened in the first beginning of time. Uh, my response was one of anger. Um, very much, oh. I was very much angry when I oh, heard so that at the time. So, did you were you there when that person said that to your mum, or are you talking about a separate situation where someone said it to you? No, no, it was uh, when I was told what was said. I oh, okay. Feeling angry at that time. As oh, well. okay. 
I remember feeling very okay. angry at that time. But uh, it was just, like I said, it was just um, something that was brought to my attention and just further confirmed what it is that the delicate mind is more yeah. important. Uh, the yeah. work that we are doing is necessary. Again, work yeah. is being a very loose term, but yeah. something that we have to do. Yeah, we, we have to kind of break that, break those taboos and that way of thinking in our community. Absolutely. So that we better understand actually what this all means mm-hmm. and what's really going on. Um, what was the most annoying thing someone consistently or said to you after your brother died? <laughs> was there anything that comes to mind that was jarring? Um... I think one thing that really frustrated me was the term Allah Murzi and that's not the, the idea that this was fated, this was meant and it wasn't necessarily the word within itself, it was the what I felt was the intention behind it is what I felt was the way in which it was delivered and the way in which it was being said, almost as if a dismissal of understanding where somebody was in I, I felt quite often at the time that there was very much a lack of understanding around um, how difficult these things can actually be. Mm. And the emotional intelligence element was, I think, very much lacking. Very, mm. very, very much lacking. And I remember that being said to me quite a bit. So I feel that that phrasing within itself bothered me. And again, it's not the phrase within itself, it's the intention behind it. Mm. That's how it was said. Yeah. They so didn't really explore, actually. Absolutely. But who you know the totality of the person yes him as an individual what he was going through the totality of who you are yeah yeah it's hard man it's hard yeah (laughs) even me just listening like i feel for you i really do i honestly i might sound very morose and i might sound very like uh, measured but that's just because i'm trying to be as um on it as possible with regards to what I'm talking about now as well because it's uh, it's an important thing man it's it uh, yeah. necessary it's a very 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 necessary thing you were in your second year of uni is that right? oh I'm long done with university I graduated uh, this oh. year oh okay but when your brother died were you at university still? yes or? I was in my final year you were in your final year so final year. did you finish uni that year? Uh, no, not that. Yeah, I was uh, very. For- I was very fortunate that obviously my university completely understood that this is probably not the best time for me to finish everything and get through it. And it was okay. um, the following year. I was very fortunate to meet somebody who was um, wonderful help to me and continues to be as well mm. in uh, getting me through that time, helping me with university and just helping with so many other things as well. And uh, yeah, I managed to finish my degree last year, and I graduated in January. With oh, congratulations! Two, thank you. With a two-one-in-law, which is a pretty fun time. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Congrats. you. Thank you. Thank you very and, much. And, uh, so your university was supportive and everything. They were oh, there for you. Yes, absolutely. I had a mental health support plan in place at the time because university was, and I'm not sure how it was for yourself or even if you are still studying, but it was not an easy time. It was a very difficult time, particularly because I had a lot of my mental health issues. And I remember having like constantly having to ask for um, extensions and all kinds of stuff as well whilst I was at uni. Mm-hmm. And then it was a very lovely and very cathartic moment to finally just just get it all out, just get it all done. It was uh, mm-hmm. it was a real pleasure. It was a real pleasure. Mm-hmm. 
that's amazing. I'm really pleased that you had that support network and you had your plan in place. Thank you very much. Do you feel like, I mean, would you say you had a lot of anger during that time? It sounds like there was some angry moments, but like, how would you describe your grief? Was it ups and downs? Was it a one thing, like just angry all the time? Or do you remember? Yeah, uh, I remember going through those five stages of grief. And I don't, oh, okay. I don't completely remember no. what the five stages of grief are, but it was like the whole anger, upset, and I think it was acceptance and all of those things at once. I remember feeling them all. I remember feeling them all very, very, very strongly as well. Uh, Not in any particular order or no? I don't remember is the truth to you. Yeah, that's normal. I don't completely remember, but yeah. angry was definitely in there, especially when you lose someone in such an instantaneous way, when the rug gets pulled underneath, from underneath your feet mm. uh, in a very split moment, it really changes you. Mm. It really, really, really genuinely changes you. And as much as I don't, at the time I didn't accept that it did. Now I understand it has done. It is, um, trauma that i live with yeah this is what has impacted me and this is still something that i have to circumnavigate and get through myself yeah so it wasn't that long ago to be there um yeah it, it feels like a lifetime ago but it also yeah it feels like a lifetime ago but it also wasn't that long ago as well yeah that's how heavy grief can be <laughs> yeah, absolutely man absolutely so um I mean, you talked about your community and faith. In your friends' network, did you experience any kind of, like, conspiracy of silence, or would you say you were quite fully supported amongst your friends? I would say that I had a small circle of people who were around me and continued to be around me as well, mm. who I was very grateful for and continued to be grateful for supporting me, not just during the initial period when somebody dies, but also for the stuff afterwards as well. A lot of people forget the aftercare, I think, is the most important thing. Yeah. And I was very fortunate to have good people around me who gave me a lot of that time, a lot of the aftercare as well. I was very, 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 very fortunate to have that with uh, the right kinds of people yeah and it's really important that aftercare because you know everyone comes to the funeral the day after the house is full everybody comes to the stuff that they deem to be important but we forget Mm. that grief continues to happen outside of this it continues to shape your understanding of the world Mm. and it's very difficult for years to come years to come years to come absolutely And, and for anyone that is listening i think a year down the line that that presence is really important whether it's a year or two however long it's almost so much more important than the actual day in itself or the day after Mm. Mm. yeah i i no i i can't say anything else to you except for i absolutely agree with you Mm. that it is the stuff afterwards that really matters it's not just the care that you're getting at the time it's the stuff you need after Mm. it's this stuff that's happening afterwards as well because this is something that you have to live with this is something that is always going to be within your heart and within your mind Mm. so the aftercare is i can't even stress how important it is Mm. so i you know i talked a little bit about identity loss in some of the other episodes 
um i i don't want to make an assumption but i'm would you say you've had like a taken on a different identity that's evolved since your brother died rather than a lot identity loss or how would you kind of describe that for you could you could you please explain that question a little bit more? Um, so I talked a little bit about identity loss that can happen when you're grieving. Yes. And it can be in the form of, you know, it could be anything. You could stop socialising, you could stop seeing the same people, yes. you could reinvent yourself, yes. you could be, into, you know, intoxicated. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. No comment. No comment. If my parents listen, then I don't want that one coming out, do I? So would you say that you did go through a period of uh, you needed some kind, you know, in your own words, I don't want to put words anymore. <laughs> yes, but, yeah. yes, yes, absolutely. I didn't, I remember um, when it happened that I definitely acted in ways that I would say that I take ownership of, I take understanding that that's how I felt at that time. But I would say now definitely feel a little alien to who I understand myself to be mm. and who I see myself as um, it's definitely something which really shaped me it's definitely mm. something that really 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 shaped me yeah, yeah. absolutely absolutely yeah. turning point in your life yeah. it, it made me act in ways I think at the time which I recognize probably weren't the most healthiest but I also understand why I acted in those ways at that time as well and it's good to take ownership of what you have done and how you have been. Um, but you have to also consider the context of the time in which you were in. Like, my brother just fucking killed himself, so I was not in a good space. I was not in a good time. So yeah. I'm, a bit, I'm a bit more kind to myself. I, I, I used yeah. to get quite bad about it, but I was like, no, I'm quite kind to myself because yeah. it, was, it was a very hard thing to go through. Yeah, of course. And yeah. self-care is really important. It's self-care now, you know. Do you practice a lot of self-care or? A lot. A hell of a lot. A hell yeah. of a lot. A hell, hell of a lot. I, um, I meditate. Yeah, so I meditate a lot. Uh, I don't do that as frequently as I think I should do, but I, meditation is something that is key and parcel. I exercise quite a lot as well. The importance of obviously the physical health and the mental health is very important and both are interlinked. So because I'm an able-bodied person, I do my best to continue to use that blessing. And so I do a lot of exercise. I, um, I read a lot. I consume a lot of books. I consume a lot of information because information is meant to be shared. I socialize a lot with my friends, my partner, my um, good people close to me. Mm. spend a lot of time with people who I think are sincere to me as well I um, play music which is very useful for myself as well I find that is to be a good way to get my thoughts together I write as well that's always very useful and something Um, that something that I sorry so when you say you write do you mean like journaling or well so I kind of just write when I feel like I've got something to say I think Mm. quite often people can write just for the sake of just doing it instead of actually having a reasoning behind this so I tend to write if I'm not feeling so great or if I feel that it's necessary for me to step back and work through a few things but one thing that I practice quite regularly as I'm still on a waiting list for counselling I've actually been waiting since I would say uh, May time and I wow. should so repute 
Don't, don't, not from Cruise, it's from an Asian counselling service, so it's an internal counselling service with the NHS and it's been something okay. that is, don't get me started on that, that's another conversation. We do need to talk about it a little yeah. bit. <laughs> okay, yeah. all right, we will. Fine, we were no problem. But, um, so now's that's... a great time to talk about that. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, if you want me to, sure. So it... I've been waiting on that for a while, and that's still two to three weeks is what I've been told. And so that started from April, May, May or June time since I've been waiting for that as well. So is that to see a BAME counsellor? Or... Yes, yes. I made I made a point of going to the Asian counselling service, which they told me started in 2004 because I thought, it's important to look at the complexity of your identity and obviously how cultural factors impact and shape your mental health. And I thought it'd be good to be able to talk to someone who can understand things a little closer to home. Yeah, so you don't need to explain certain things all the time or repeat yes. yourself and people are yes. like shocked when you yeah. explain yeah. something so simple. Yes, absolutely. I th- it was It's very tiresome, so I just made a, yeah. I made a point in that. It was quite yeah. good. Okay, so after your, so you're still on the waiting list for that now. Is that for your mental health or or, or for everything, bereavement, mental health, uh, everything in your life? That both bereavement and mental health, and for okay. just every other thing going on in my life at the moment, which I can clearly see, I need to get support with, like right now, and I'm, I'm yeah. very much, very much aware of those things. And do you know why there's a waiting list? Yes. Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And that would be obviously under underfunded mental health services. It would be uh, mental health services which aren't given the same parity of physical health. Mm-hmm. I, I've known of people who very sadly have passed because of suicide because they've been on a waiting list so fucking long. And obviously we have to consider the nature of how the system is set up and inshallah the delicate mind is another example of being able to circumnavigate these things of being able to give people support when you're there and they need it i like to think and feel that i'm a bit more mentally stronger um, than most people and i've been very fortunate to be able to realize and recognize a lot of my mental health issues a lot of my problems and how these things have informed and shaped myself but not everybody. Everybody has completely individual, unique characteristics to them. We have different forms of mental health issues. Some people mm-hmm. live with a complexity of more than one thing. Some people have way more complex needs. And so it's very important that that is given the same parity of esteem. How, how is somebody who is suffering with a mental health crisis going to be waiting for it on a mental health service list? It's, it's absolutely preposterous. It's absolutely mm. ridiculous. It's absolutely yeah. ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Especially absolutely. when depression and mental health is the leading, I don't know how you want to describe it, disease today. <laughs> it's uh, one of the, it's a leading, it's genuinely going to be the most debilitating, according to the World Health Organization, it's going to be the most thing that impacts people's public health record from 2030 so it makes way more sense to be proactive than reactive right it makes Mm. way more sense to do these things now Mm. Mm. to to deal with them in this moment in time while we can before it's too late absolutely it's very necessary to be proactive and not reactive Mm. that's something which is necessary so after your, you know, I don't want to keep going back to this, but I, I know that you're on this waiting list for everything that's going on now. Um, 
but after your brother died kind of did you have any grief cancelling what what did you do what support did you have uh, yes I did actually I had we just spoke obviously off off air about the fact that I was within cruise uh, mm. bereavement counseling so I went yeah. for an appointment at the time and it was I would say useful for that session within itself it was good to be able to have a space to talk about it but it was quite quite generalized in the sense of just bereavement the obviously bereavement is relative to each individual person and mm. because I feel because of my experience that suicide is such a very complex and complicated form of loss that it's very much needing and uh, necessitates something which is in relation towards that loss within itself particularly when it first happens and so it was during that time that we I decided to do something to be able to set something up long term which I thought might have been a bit better which is something that we as the, the delicate mind are currently developing and currently working on as mm. well as a, as a support service available to bereaved people which is more I think inclusive of the individual of the whole totality of the person which mm -hmm. I've, I felt through my experience was lacking okay so how many sessions did you have at cruise do you remember yes I had two uh well I was supposed to have four but I wasn't I just didn't feel that I was getting anything from the sessions afterwards as well so I stuck to just having my two um particularly because the time was like I said quite difficult and I felt at the time that the service in question had out outlived its usefulness for me it had done everything that i was hoping for myself to get at the at time, the time. At, at the time, time. and so. what about okay yeah that's fair enough um and uh quite a lot of people would probably relate to that at the time it kind of serves its use at Absolutely. the time at the but, time but things change no, things um, change yeah as always um so did you have any other kind of support after that? Was there any other counselling service that you went to that you can recall or no? That was no, it, it was, that was it. That was it. Those were the two things that I did at the time. Well, the two sessions I did at the time and that was all. That was it? That was it. Wow. That was, wow. That was it. I had wow. uh, friends. I had friends. I had people and I just kept doing what I was. I just kept, I guess I just kept living. Mm. Just kept living. Just kept going. Just kept taking it you a bit man. longer. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. You're Thank right. You. You're right. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> pleased to be continuing the conversation with the co-director of Delicate Mind, Nick Watt Marowat. Happy Halloween, man. How are you? 
Oh, happy Halloween and happy Samayan. Samayan is also the initial, I think, Wiccan term as well. I'm doing very well, thank you very much for asking. How about yourself? Yeah, not bad. Happy to uh, be be talking to you on, on Halloween. <laughs> I think it's quite a... Spooky uh, time. Yeah, spooky time. Spooky time. Yeah. Any favourite Halloween movies? Any favourite Halloween movies? That's an yeah. interesting question. Uh, no. Just no. uh, quite, quite honestly, no. To be honest with you, I quite no. I've yeah. I know this sounds a bit weird, but I really want to watch something really, really, really scary, and I haven't really found many movies that really, genuinely make me feel unsettled. If that makes any sense. So, mm -hmm. if you've got any recommendations for any good Halloween movies, send them away. Sure. So the one that I like to watch every year without fail is Black Christmas. Black, is that the one in Black Mirror? Am I wrong in saying the Black Mirror episode, or is that just completely... I've completely said something different, haven't I? <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm completely... No, it's White Christmas. It's White Christmas. Okay, what's Black Christmas? So so Black Christmas is um, it's a classic uh, film set uh, during Halloween in the States in a sorority house. I would describe it as the original Scream. Okay, and it's creepy as hell. It's so creepy. And it's that whole thing with the phone ringing mm. and finding dead people in a sorority house. Okay. Um, but it's because it's, you know, it's set in the 70s. It's a bit of a classic. It's got that whole original cult feeling. And it's, yeah, I think it's creepy. So, yeah, give it a go and, and see how you get on. Okay. Okay. Um... Yeah. Black Christmas, Black yeah. Christmas. Okay, uh, I'm not going to promise anything, but at least now when someone asks me that question next time, I can just say Black Christmas. Yeah. Just wing, I'll just wing my way through the yeah. question. And, and when you do say that, it's going to make you sound very cool. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. what I do. I just claim <laughs> pop culture from everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I'm sure I did the same. I'm sure I saw that from someone else as well. So really pleased to be continuing the conversation with you and thank you very much we're going to be talking about muslim funerals mm -hmm. uh because that's something we didn't touch on earlier on in our conversation so i'm i am really keen to know what that kind of looked like for you uh when your brother died and kind of what your thoughts are on muslim burials and mm -hmm. you know our rituals so i recall very vividly that it was a birmingham central mosque we had driven there because my, we'd finally managed to get everything sorted in the sense of the funeral arrangements. Quite often, obviously in Islam, we bury people quite quickly. But given the way in which my brother died meant there was a little bit of a delay in the sense of getting everything together. So after that had been done and after all the relevant arrangements had been made, I remember quite vividly being in the car park. I remember sitting down in this car, in my mum's car, and I remember putting a CD on. I quite often listen to music as a therapy for myself, to be honest with you. And it was one of my favourites, in fact, probably my favourite singer, uh, Otis Redding. And I put this CD in and I was just listening to music, just trying to focus on something in front of me. And then it got to, I would say, the third track and it just kept skipping it kept repeating because it was scratches on the cd and i remember turning it off and just sitting in my car just waiting 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 and then my uncle came i said my uncle but my family friend as we obviously we always call people uncles mm. you know in not the window and he just told me yeah son they're ready 
and then I remember sort of dragging my feet going inside getting through the corridor and then there was the closed casket so it had the white cloth over it and we had all of my family around it just the hands over it praying crying as is what you'd anticipate and what you'd expect and I remember being there and I remember crying I remember praying I remember standing over it as well not really knowing what I was doing just sort of going along with it particularly because it was my very first experience of a Muslim funeral as well so I just kind of followed what was going on around me I didn't really have any understanding I didn't really have any experience of this beforehand so it was quite new to me at the time as well I remember at one point as well because the mosque was in different stories I remember getting to the second part of the story and I remember the imam leading a prayer I remember a congregation of us standing together and just praying and I remember I was dressed in washiwakamis, typical white shiwakamis, and I remember leaving that point as well. And somebody coming to me and asking, sorry, is that your brother? And I went, yes, yes it is. And I just carried on walking because I didn't know whether it was a case of a person asking out of interest mm. or a person asking out of sincerity. I think they're two very different things. It's mm-hmm. Often people can just want to know something and this is quite often I think the experience of the South Asian diaspora as well. Mm-hmm. I have not gaps but I can see myself actually now going through the day. I remember that happening. I remember some of my friends coming. I invited some of my friends just to come and pay their condolences and at different times during the day some of my friends came to support me. I recall then at one point we had to leave and I remember the coffin being again on the bottom floor and I recall that my mom was extraordinarily upset, almost hysterical mm-hmm. when they were trying to take it away and I remember going to her mm-hmm. and I remember being what I would say was cruel but kind, just yeah. getting her and saying, I don't recall what I said, but I remember the action. I remember being cruel but kind and sort of stealing her whilst I was there. And the next thing I knew, the coffin would be carried into the back of what would be the hearse. My dad getting into the front of it and the hearse in the back of the car as well. Mm-hmm. I then recall myself and my cousin and a couple of my friends getting into the car. And the drive there was actually quite... I'd say, in a way, kind of funny. Mm. I, remember, I remember asking for a very specific music to be played whilst we were driving. I remember talking to them as if it was somewhat normal day. I recall us getting stuck in traffic, as is always the way, and being told, being called by my dad a few times because they were waiting to bury him. Mm. And I remember us going on the hard shoulder, and I remember my cousin being like, shit am I, am I allowed to do this and my dad was like yeah yeah it's fine it's okay and so that was something which was in retrospect I can look back and laugh on to be honest with you we ended up getting there we got to the funeral we got to the cemetery sorry and 
some of my friends were waiting, some of my family were waiting. And we went through the whole procedure. They got the coffin, carried it over to where they were going to arrest him. Mm-hmm. And the hole had already been dug. Yeah. So slowly he'd been put in. And I remember yeah. us all gathered around. Mm. And I recall us all slowly lifting it all. And I got my friends to come and help me at that time as well. All of us, my friends and my wider family. And as we did that, I recall that just being put in the bottom of the six foot grave. And then they did something which I didn't expect. They opened the coffin. Oh, wow. And I didn't realize that this was going to happen. And of course, my brother was just laid out in the uh, kofan, which is the wrapping that they'd have with the people. So when someone passes, the first thing that they tend to do is the whistle, where close family members come and they look at the person who's passed away and they wash them around about three times or mm-hmm. additional times. But given how my brother had died, I don't think that that would have been ideal for us probably quite traumatic truth be told oh so you, so you didn't wash his body no was it done by the the yes. staff at the mall yes yes it was done by the staff at the at the um at the mosque yeah okay and i remember being him being laid out in the kofan which was very peculiar for me because i could see in front of me there was obviously my brother there mm-hmm. and i didn't realize that we would have to uh, put soil on and bury that and I didn't want my dad to do it. I recall him turning around looking at me at one point and then I just thought no I have to do this and I remember getting there doing it myself and from there everything's a little bit of a blur truth be told I remember us quite vividly all gathered around putting the soil on slowly just burying my brother my family and my friends and I remember I remember a man I don't know who he was, probably a relative of some sort, telling me what I should do. And I remember very vividly looking at him and saying, wait. Uh, We continued and we carried on just burying my brother, Mm. putting the soil on top of his body, on top of the coffin. Mm. And I remember that I did something. I remember that I'm doing it now actually. I had my right hand and I remember the soil that was on my hand as well. I remember looking at it and I recall taking a photo just off of my hand. I'm not sure why I did it but at the time it seemed like a good idea and I recall taking a photo of this and after that had been done I remember my everybody else had kind of left us slightly and I um stood with my brother's grave and my dad said a few words and we cried and then it was over wow and it was done this photo that you took with the soil in your hands yes do you since then i'm sure you had some time to think about that do you is that because you wanted a memory of that moment or do you recall believe that at that time that was what I thought I think so anyway I think at that time that's what I thought that's what I wanted to do I wanted to I think have a recollection or have a reminder of the day and in retrospect I think that's a bit I think it's a bit silly 
because you're never going to forget and that's something I probably tell myself that was many years ago that you're never going to really forget but it just felt fitting at that time mm. were there any like was your mum at the burial um were any relatives at the burial or, or no they kind of left after the ceremony in the mosque well of course so in some parts of the Islamic tradition, sometimes women, and I didn't realize this until it happened on the day, uh, don't always attend the burial process. And that's something which I thought was a little bit shocking, truth be told. Something that I didn't like, if I'm very honest with you. In my opinion, and this is my perspective, is that I feel that it's can be very useful for people because it's a form of closure. And of mm. course, that's not to say that the grief stops at that point you bury a person. In fact, the grief continues and it's probably the hardest part post the funeral. Now, I remember um, her not being there and I remember raising this with my dad. that I didn't like it. I wasn't comfortable with it. But I just kind of, I guess, accepted it at that time. I kind of just thought it's just one of those other things that I don't like about the cultural perspectives and the cultural norms, which is effectively just peer pressure from dead people. Um, mm. And it really, I think it bothered me. I think it bothered me. And I think to some degree it still does, truth be told. Uh, there's a lots of different... Uh, interpretations but certain sects within Islam and certain individuals or practices still allow and quite rightly so in my opinion women to attend the funeral mm. and uh, how it was explained to me was it's the idea of the pressure that uh, the women would see which I think inherently is quite weirdly patriarchal the idea that you aren't going to be able to handle that is a bit strange to myself I think it should come down to each individual person but no, I recall leaving and I recall my mom went the following day, not on the day in question, but the following day to go to the grave and to go and do all of, all of the other stuff that people do, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a, such a tricky subject, I find. I, a lot of people ask me, you know, they always ask why why don't women go to the burial you know why is that and it's all I've always found it really difficult to explain and I guess my understanding of it was growing up in a South Asian Muslim family as well is that it's to do with how the soul departs from the body interesting um, tell me some more so I was always told that the um women well this is what they say women show their grief outwardly and if the the you know the person that has died can hear outward grief like wailing or crying or screaming um they can the soul senses that and it's really difficult for the soul to depart the body because of those sounds and mm. that's why culturally i think you know over years uh, maybe that happened when jesus was alive or when muhammad was alive i don't know um maybe that happened and it kind of got passed on since then that women aren't allowed at the burial because someone once cried and that doesn't help the soul leave the body and as you say it became patriarchal and apparently men don't show their emotions outwardly bullshit but, yeah and because you've just told me you cried your dad cried 
<laughs> everybody was. Everybody, everybody did. was crying. Yeah. Everybody did. So it's bullshit. Yeah. So I just like I've always just been told it's to do with the soul and and then I was just like, oh, okay. So I just you know, and I tried researching it, and there's just so much stuff out there that I didn't know what was the truth. Of course. And then I think someone said to me, maybe you should go and read the Quran. Maybe it's in the Quran somewhere. It's mentioned somewhere about women not being there. But I find the whole thing really odd because in the Middle East, you see a lot of women attending burials and burying their dead, for example, in the rest of the world. Um, But in the UK, I've been to loads of Muslim funerals over the years. And I, I never see women. I always find that I'm that only person or one other person standing mm. seven feet away watching in a distance. Be- mm. Because I always said, I don't care what you think. I'm going to go. Fine. I might not be digging the grave or throwing the mud. But I, I'm, you know, standing very close. You're present. I'm present and I need to see it. And it was for my own closure benefit and I remember my brother once saying to me because my brother died in 2017 and I won't go into that because you'll hear the story at the end of season one but when he died I had to stand six feet away but I was the only woman there and my other brother said to me you know what I could see you standing there in a distance I felt so sorry for you and I I wish you could have been like closer Mm. but it's just this whole cultural peer pressure thing as you say and Mm. I I don't know how to make sense of it even now and when people ask me in a professional setting working in bereavement I find my defenses my defenses are quite high Mm. because I don't know how to answer the question and because they they start going off on a a bit of a gender judgment and like oh well that's what Islam is like that's what Muslims are like They're, they're just oppressing their women and that's another form of oppression and I I just get really lost in the whole thing, truth, truth be told. Mm, mm. I think it's quite interesting because I did uh, mention the fact that there are different sects and different cultures and in fact many funerals where women do attend. And I think a lot of this is inherited fundamentally within cultural practices as opposed to theological religious ones, as is quite often a lot of things which are quite problematic. Mm. And so it's... Uh, interesting that that was your experience it's very interesting that was your experience yeah and I I still don't know what to make of it today <laughs> because I I feel like there needs to, someone needs to just put a fact in front of me and, <laughs> and then I can take it to the imams and all the other leaders and be like uh sorry you're wrong <laughs> I'm trying to attend the burial so can I get my closure now please <laughs> you know it just changed the whole concept and the thinking but uh it's a it's a tricky one and mm. I'm really pleased to kind of talk talk with you and hear about your experiences on that because I think it's important that we we put it out there to our listeners um what that kind of means and what that looks like and what our understanding is of it indeed yeah yeah it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one it's a heavy one mm. So what was the, like, um, was a lot of the college community or Brothers College community present at the time as well? Reactions? and No, um, they weren't. They attended after we, a lot of his school friends um, found out post and they came and they sent flowers and I believe they visited him of their, of their own accord to go and pay their own respects. Like I, when he was in college, um, 
and wasn't too familiar with a lot of the people he was spending his time with, or even if he was, truth be told. There's a level of not knowing that I'll never really know, which I'm okay with. It doesn't really phase me because that part of that time is done, it's finished. Mm. Mm. I, I'm just always really curious to know, you know, when when a young person dies, uh, just kind of what the school and college, university environment is like, uh, how supportive they are and how it's dealt with and how they work with the families. Um, well, his know. school was, his uh, grammar school was mm. very, very, very supportive. And that's where he spent the majority of what would be his young life. They were very supportive and mm. uh, very lovely when they found out as to what had happened. And I'm not sure if I mentioned last time, but a very peculiar thing, as I said, as I've been doing The Delicate Mind, and I feel like I've discovered more of what is my purpose on this earth. I ended up going back to my brother's old grammar school of all places and was able to deliver work there with the delicate wow. mind. And that was a, yeah, that was a real blessing. That was a real blessing. A lot of intrin intrinsic and intricate things aligned and came together, which allowed me to go to this space and to do work with other kids there. It was very powerful. Bittersweet, yeah. actually. Bittersweet is what I would say. Yeah, very. Yeah, that's, that's amazing and yeah bittersweet is definitely the right word for that to kind of go back to school and I'm sure some of these old school teachers were there and yes yeah wow yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's a fucking trip yes <laughs> yeah man <laughs> the big one <laughs> uh, right so I want to talk about suicide language with you. Um, so there's this thing called committed suicide and then died by suicide. So kind of talk me through that. Well, the term committed denotes it to be a criminal offence. And I believe at one point within Britain, it actually was a criminal offence to, uh, to commit suicide. And when we say commit, the language and the connotation behind this implies that there is a form of a crime. When we say someone has committed a burglary or a robbery or a murder or a theft or whatever it might be, that within itself has the connotations that what has been done is a criminal act. And interestingly, I feel that the same level of language is applied when someone talks about suicide to say that someone has committed something I believe carries the connotation inside of that, that that individual has done something inherently, I suppose, in, in, inherently criminal or inherently bad in some way. I think we have to be very mindful and very careful of the kind of language that we use, especially when we shape our understandings, because, of course, every individual has unique and respective and intrinsic trauma towards themselves. And different things form different connotations for us. So... I think I told you last time, and I'm going to preface this with a trigger warning because you never know who's listening. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I preface this with a trigger warning of sexual assault. And I was made aware of somebody who was uh, sexually assaulted. And as this happened, there was there were lemons nearby. And now what has happened is as a con consequence of that, the connotation being is whenever this individual in question smells lemons, or is anywhere near something that's lemon-scented, it triggers that same kind of response, it triggers that same kind of emotional heightened nature. Yeah. And yeah. 
this is why we have to be very mindful of the sort of stuff that people combine and put together. And language is a very powerful thing. It's how you it's how you shape something and it's how you destroy something. If I speak to you in a soft tone, in a calm tone, and my words are full of kindness, you're going to take that and receive that well. If I change my words and I speak to you with anger, if I speak to you with bitterness, if I speak to you with resentment, you're going to take that a completely other way. Mm-hmm. And so our language around this sort of stuff is very important. And it's not necessarily a case of policing what we say. Yeah. It's a case of being mindful of what we say. It's a case of being aware of how it can really impact a person. Um, to somebody else, as I've said last time, it might be a very simple case of a coat that you can just take off at any time. But for others, it's not this way. It's not that case. Mm-hmm. And so the language needs to be, I think, very carefully and very critically examined. In fact, what I think is quite interesting is I see this quite a lot in our political landscape about how it's political suicide. And that word is just bandied around so easily as if the connotation of the act within itself is such an easy and simple and simplistic thing for them to do. And sometimes I'll be okay with it, it won't bother me. And other times it really, really, really fucking frustrates me mm. when I when I see that term just being thrown around left, right and centre. Um, as if, again, just to, just to take away from the gravity of what the action within itself actually is. Mm. So we have to be very mindful and very careful of the words that we use in anything, in any day-to-day life, because they have the power to create and they have the power to destroy. Earlier on in my conversation with Nick Watt, he talked about counselling and bereavement support, what this looked like for him at the beginning of his journey. He's been on this incredibly long waiting list for months, in fact, but I'm really pleased to say that He's no longer on this waiting list. He is seeing a counsellor and he's going to talk us through what this looks like for him. Well, very recently, I finally, about two weeks ago, I would say now, I managed to, no, a week ago, I apologise, I was able to get counselling. So I've been on a waiting list now for a good few months, I'd say five to six months. And yeah, it was a long wait. And during that time, I had to enact some practices, the things I mentioned last time, like my gratitude journal, my writing, my meditation, all of these kind of practical things. I thought, okay, cool. I've got to wait all of this time. So I need to do something. I need to put a tangible, practical action Mm. behind getting myself together. Mm. So I recently last week had an appointment with an Asian counsellor. So it's part of the Asian counselling service, which started in 2004. And it was quite... I feel quite useful in the sense that it confirmed that a lot of the stuff I'm doing now, so that is my actions, are the right thing to do, if that makes any sense. So the behaviours were like, okay, this is good, this is great that you've learnt this and you've, you're focusing on this at the moment. And I was able to share with my my therapist um, about, I think, triggers and where I feel that some of my traumas come from. And it was quite useful just to have this, just this small space to be able to talk about this and then do it in a way where I felt I was in control, that I was Mm. given space simply just to talk and which is extraordinarily useful. And I look forward to my next appointment, which is next week, next Wednesday. So I believe I have five to six sessions and it'll be good to, I think, unlearn a few things, confirm a few things 
and also give myself a proper space and proper environment to to reflect and get the help that I require and I deserve. And I'd be a hypocrite if I advocated all of this work myself, but didn't take part in it of my own accord, because then it would just be hypocrisy. I can't say that I'm abiding by what I live if I'm not getting the same help, which I recommend to everybody as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. It sounds so positive. And after waiting for so many months, it just sounds like it's going really well in the direction that you need. And yes. that, that's amazing. And yes, you're, you're so right. I, I'm a big believer in cancelling. It's like gym for the mind. <laughs> and that's amazing. So I, I noticed you mentioned that you're with the Asian Cancelling Service. Yes. Is that via the NHS or was yeah, that private? Yes, it's, no, it's oh, no, no, no. It's uh, via it's via my doctor. It's via my local doctor oh, who wow. has an internal service which they are doing at, running at this moment in time. Wow, that's and it, a- the NHS is. Well, I can sing so many good praises about the NHS as an institution. So that's another conversation for another time. But yeah, I'm really grateful for that. Wow, that's wow! I'm yeah. re- really impressed you got that on the NHS yeah, and an Asian yeah. counsellor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As yeah, well, yeah, yeah. was that important for you to have an uh, an Asian counsellor or a BAME counsellor? For me, it was important to get an Asian counsellor because I feel that some of my issues, call it what you will, are rooted within the South Asian experience, uh, the South Asian diaspora. And I felt it was necessary to be able to convey these messages to somebody who would have more of a material understanding from having experienced or maybe even been around these issues themselves. I feel that obviously we as human beings, when we can relate to people, we like to share with people. And I'm very open anyway. But I felt that if I wanted to get to the root cause of what I felt was some of my problems, it's important to tackle them from a cultural perspective. So for me personally for this thing it was quite important yes just like I feel sometimes it might be important for a person who may be struggling with their sexuality uh, somebody who may be struggling with whatever it might issue it might be is tailored towards a person who is in relation to this issue so they have not just necessarily clinical understanding but an empathetic understanding as well a practical understanding of these experiences because you can relate to people which is the most simplistic answer I could have just said that but you know no, I like it. Um, that's important. You mentioned that about being able to relate. And also there are certain cultural nuances, I guess, in the South Asian community. Um, it's important to speak to maybe someone that's from that community that has lived experience of it or understands it very well coming from that background. Yes. So I guess what I'm interested in knowing is could uh, someone from the white community or another community not be able to help with that the only reason I ask is because this year when I did my counselling foundation the talk about representation and diversity in counselling psychotherapy came up a week before diversity week Mm -hmm. and it was met with a lot of silence and if I'm honest it wreaked havoc for the rest of the course Mm-hmm. In, in the what term. sense? It was met with silence that there is a need for transcultural sensitivity. Interesting. 
you know, there is a need for BAME counsellors and psychotherapists. And it's very well known that psychotherapy attracts a certain demographic of people. There's a lot of status attached to it. It's very expensive to train. And I guess I was in a majority room of white community, I guess you could say the white middle class female. And it was met with a lot of awkward silence. Nobody seemed to, well, I'm I'm not saying they didn't want to address talking about representation and societal issues, but there was a bit of awkwardness in the sense that they were stuck on how they would be able to help BAME communities because there's not enough BAME counsellors and therapists. And when there are, there's a lot of long waiting lists. So it is likely that BAME clients will end up seeing a counsellor that's not from their community. So I guess what I'm trying to say is on when I was doing my course, I was asked directly as a middle class white woman, what can I do to get closer to BAME communities? Mm. And it's it's a tricky one. I didn't know how to answer at the time because I was very much in my feelings at the time in the sense that I couldn't believe it was met with silence and, you know, people were saying we don't see colour and religion and race and ethnicity and all all these other things and there was a lot of defence in the room. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm wondering from your point of view, I guess I'm trying to throw the question to you because (laughs) I never answered the question when I was in class and actually it was my classmate Kat who Mm -hmm. asked the question. She said, oh, well, I'm white and I'm middle class. So what can I do to get closer to your community? Uh, Because she's going to likely have BAME clients. Actually, most of these therapists are going to have people that don't look like them, act like them, speak like them, or come from the same faithful culture than them. I guess it would just be very... Because personally, I think, yes, absolutely, you can. Um, You might have a more... You will, not might, you will have a more nuanced understanding coming from an experience and a background that you've related to. Again, I refer to sexuality, somebody who themselves is... Now, LGBT plus who might be going through something difficult if they have a counsellor who understands these issues because they themselves are from that background it's a uniquely difficult place and travel a journey to travel simultaneously somebody from a BAME background so black Asian whatever ethnic minority it might be you are more likely to be able to understand the significant cultural experiences behind that diaspora just like if I was a woman I'm sure I would not com- completely understand the female experience, but I would understand the backgrounds if they explained it towards me. I feel that the best way to do it is to listen, to learn, I guess, listen actively, to understand and try to comprehend everybody's interconnected and different experiences. I think absolutely you're at an advantage if you are from that background. That's just, it's just very simple and very logical. Um, Coming from that background means you're more likely to have similar experiences, similar understanding and similar um, expertise and similar experiences, which will allow you to understand more. So that just makes, that goes without saying, all across the board, regardless of what background you're from. So it doesn't matter whether it's even if it's just ethnicity. If you are from a particular subsection and you've had particular subsequent experiences you're going to relate to more to those people but that doesn't mean that you can't understand where people are coming from that doesn't mean that you can't comprehend where people are coming from i met this really nice well i was on the train to london last week and i met this really nice uh, lecturer from the university of oh god i hope it's sussex i hope it's sussex in case she's listening that we're terrible but it's from the university of sussex 
and she herself was doing an event on BAME equality awareness and she was explaining it's because her husband was a uh, person of colour and obviously her children were mixed race and she was explaining all of these things towards me and how it works within the academic system and now there's a little bit of pushback but this was somebody who took an active experience and an active role and an active understanding because she saw the difference between the communities and the qualities and what this thing means. So I think it's a bit remiss to say people can't get it. But again, you have to look into what your intention is and to trying to understand if you're just trying to if you're trying to educate and inform not just the other person, but yourself, then I think you're doing it right. I wish you were there to answer that question because at the time I was like, <laughs> I can't deal with this shit right now. Like, um, but yeah, it it's a tricky one, I think, because every single guest I've had on this podcast so far, including yourself, has said they have had a therapist or a counsellor from you know white community at some point and it hasn't worked or it's been very sympathetic and very nice but it's not what they needed on a deeper level of understanding Mm -hmm. from their cultural perspective or you know from their lived experiences and they would prefer someone from BAME but then that poses other questions because there's just not enough of us out Mm -hmm. there because this profession is very expensive to train in and there's other multiple factors involved, which I'm not going to get into now. It's a a conversation for another time, but I was just interested to know what your perspective was on that. So thank you for asking. Yeah. Thank you. So, So moving on, I wanted to talk a little bit about compassionate leave in the UK um so quite a few of our guests had something to say about it I definitely have something to say about it I was just wondering if you had any kind of stance or opinion on it do you even know what the policy is yes to my understanding there isn't actually like a statutory body or a statutory legislation that refers to compassionate leave it's just down to the employer it's down to the individual you're working with I'm correcting saying that aren't I yes that is correct yes I'm correct in saying that And I thought that was actually quite interesting when I read about it. Um, I think I can see... See, I can see a benefit from having an overall statutory, like a legislation in place to say this amount of time for this amount of thing. But each experience is so individual. Each company deals with it relatively to which the company and organisation they are. I know that some aren't so great, especially with if you look in the media at the moment with some... I'm just going to name them Asda, for example, who have been making a putting. <laughs> no, I'm just going to say it. Who have been putting forward the legislative the contract recently? Who basically have said, if you don't sign this, we're going to fire you, which is ridiculous because it cuts people's tea breaks, it cuts people's working hours. It's just a very, very, very bad contract. A lot of the unions have said so as well. So obviously, it depends on the organisation that you were working for and with. I, when I used to work for. A mental health charity away from the delicate mind they were so compassionate so loving so understanding so considerate a lot of the time and i felt that was probably the best place i've well one of the best places in fact no probably mine is the delicate mind probably the best place i've worked for um i felt that they were very compassionate and very understanding so i'm not sure i have a complete answer i don't want to give you something wishy-washy i, I can see 
a good benefit from having something in body but I can also see maybe working with the employer in question. I guess it comes down to who you are with. I suppose maybe having a set mandatory standard would be a good idea, which then can be built and expanded upon according to the company that you're working with. I feel like that, to me, seems like a more reasonable and sensible mm. background. Probably up to, in my my um, opinion, I personally believe that, because this is no amount of time at all, but realistically, I would suggest up to one to two months of paid leave for the loss in question for an individual would be having because realistically if you want your employer to come back and be productive towards you you should give them something to respond towards as well you have to show that you respect them you appreciate them because a lot of income and a lot of your workings come from your employees from the people that you're having so you should value them you should value them as people and not just necessarily being part of a corporate entity or a corporate brand so yeah I think think that's pretty much my answer on it what, what's your what's your take what's your opinion mm. uh, very similar to yours I think that it should be paid yes the length of time I think it needs to be holistic based nice. on okay I agree the, individuals experience yes. uh, the person that died in their life yes um because you know how long is a piece of string you don't get yeah. things in a day or five days True. and sometimes grief hits you a year down the line if it doesn't hit you soon so mm -hmm. it's I think it needs to be holistic I do think it needs to be paid but Absolutely. you know it's just as a volunteer and someone that works in this space I hear hundreds of stories where people are really struggling with their employer because they're not getting the appropriate leave and it's causing health issues and they're having to go to their doctor to get a sick note to work around it because the policy in their company was one day or between yes. one and five days. So for me, I feel like because there is no policy in place, something needs to change and it needs to change rapidly. Mm, uh, that could, I agree with you actually I would always suggest to people having issues with them join a union because that's the first and foremost thing and the second thing would be definitely legislation sounds like it from your argument which has persuaded me more it should be a lot more meanable it should be a lot more holistic and it should absolutely be paid money the people must understand that money doesn't give you a I guess a gap in the person who is gone it doesn't fill that hole but Obviously, it takes off a material financial stress within this world that we've created. It takes that away because you have that over your head alongside this terrible thing that's just happened towards yeah. you, which which everybody will be impacted mm. by. Nobody Absolutely. is ever... We, we live years where nothing happens to us and we think we're invulnerable to it, but it will affect everybody. If it doesn't happen in your early years, it will happen in your later years. Nobody is safe from grief, and that's a maybe a harsh reality but one that I think we need to face up to and provide more of an empathetic understanding to in our public and political life as well. So what do you remember about your brother anything that comes to mind when you think about him? Oh he was the best he was he was an absolute G I had a lot of time a lot of love and I miss him very much but I feel that through everything that I'm doing he's still with me I strongly feel that he is very much still with me all of these work again brackets work that I've been doing since with the delicate mind and all of these strange strange blessings that have happened towards us um, I don't feel in any other way except for his presence is with me before my brother died uh, he saw me on the TV talking about mental health and I remember my dad telling me um, 
that he was he said to my, my dad that he was very proud of me and that he thought that I was going to go very far which is very nice particularly if maybe he can maybe he can't who knows particularly if you could see where we are at now and what we're doing now I think his mind I think his mind would implode which in a nice way in a very nice way so wow. yeah nothing That's lovely nothing but good things obviously brothers are brothers and we fought at times and we had different things but as we got older our relationship was a lot more closer and yeah I miss him and I hope to be able to continue to serve his memory best as best as I can with the delicate mind and with my practices as well with me being me oh, 100% yeah that's lovely really lovely <laughs> thank you so we're kind of coming towards the end and what I like to do is do this gratefulness challenge and again it might sound a bit cheesy no, or like a cliche but I love it not at all that's sorry I'm so sorry you asked me something that I do um, for my mental health one thing I do do yeah. it's just in reference towards your um, question which is I do a gratefulness challenge a gratefulness oh. challenge sorry not a challenge what am I talking about I wake up every morning yeah and before I go on my phone, before I waste time on Twitter and my emails and all that kind of stuff, I write down what I'm grateful for. So I'll write down the things that I am grateful for um, and I'll say them out loud. Mm -hmm. And then that just sort of sets me for the day. Neuroscience has shown that gratitude actually rewires your brain as well. So it changes like different neural pathways. And so that's something that I've been practicing, particularly because the fact that I'm waiting so long on this counselling waiting list. So yeah. I thought this would be a good practice, and it has. It's really benefited me. It's really served me. So it's something mm -hmm. I do. Something I do every morning, yeah. which has been revolutionary. Actually, I've been doing this now for I would say four months. So it's became wow. yeah, it's become a constant habit. It's become a constant like lifestyle now, and it's very useful. It's very, very, very useful. But Less sorry, I say. yeah, sorry, your gratitude challenge. I didn't want to interrupt. No, no, no. It's really important that you said that. Um, I can resonate with that. It's really important. I I did a similar thing a year ago, but I did it via Insta stories. So every day I would film myself, film myself, and say what I'm grateful for today. But I did come across some stumbling blocks where there were days where I just wasn't grateful or I found it hard but I appreciated the fact that being disappointed and not being grateful was also something to be grateful for because That's it showed what I value when I'm disappointed or angry or you know if that makes sense uh could you elaborate a little bit yeah more? so uh when I got to the end of the challenge um I did like a reflection it was like a hundred day gratefulness challenge yes I did a reflection there were days where I couldn't find something that I was grateful for and I was clutching at straws like I was running for the bus and today I caught the bus and I was so thankful because I was on time for my meeting it was yes. getting a bit like that um but the, and then there were kind of days where I was really disappointed or angry and it felt like I wasn't being grateful because I had a disappointing day or I was angry about something yes but I what I took away from that was that it was good that I was angry and that I was um disappointed because it showed me what I value yes and what I yes. don't value and what makes me sad and actually it's okay to not be okay and I should and I felt grateful for the fact that I had an indicator of what that is what it means mm. to not be mm. okay to accept that actually today I'm not okay Mm. and it's fine mm. Mm. 
Mm. That's good. That's good. That's good. I I strongly would advocate to anybody who is um, in a point of distress or difficulty that this is something that I can attest through from my personal experience has been uh, life changing. It's been very useful for me to be able to focus, particularly the whole metaphysical idea that your thoughts will become your reality. The idea that these things will again shift and change the neural pathways in your brain. They'll form different forms of structures. Mm. So this neuro neuroscience backs up this idea that we should be a little bit more grateful because it mm. shows. Um, no, it, it works. Yeah, yeah, but it works. It works. Science yeah. shows you it works. Metaphysics yeah. shows you it works. So just yeah. do the thing if it works. Keep going. And yeah, if just... you are having a bad day, you could be grateful for that because it's yes. just showing you that you're human. And absolutely, you know, it's okay to not be okay sometimes. You can't absolutely. always be grateful for all these big goals. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So what are you grateful for today in this moment? Shall I begin or do you want to go first? In this, what, do you want me to talk about my, my journal or do you want me to just talk about like right now in this moment? Right now, right now in this moment. Right now. What comes to your mind? What are you grateful for now? Um, I'm grateful for the fact that I am alive and I'm grateful for the fact that I have a lot of unique blessings that have made me who I am and I'm grateful to be able to use them in a way which I think will serve people as best as possible beautiful oh okay <laughs> i was gonna say how's that is that all right I can, yeah. I can well it's it. however you want it to be i can't oh, tell you if it's all right or not that's your tree <laughs> no that's, i think that's I all think, you yeah i think that's that's what i'd say yeah so i guess what am i grateful for today i i feel like ever since i started doing this podcast interviewing everyone i'm learning something different from every individual and even though I've you know I have been bereaved in the past it, it's just when you listen to other people's stories everyone's grief is different it's a, you know an individual journey and I feel like I'm learning something new every time I someone tells me their story like today you telling sharing your story I feel like I'm learning something that I didn't know before that's really nice thank you um, I'm glad that I can use my experience is to maybe teach somebody something or help someone with something. I really, I do appreciate that a lot. And it won't just be me. It will be a lot of people listening as well that will have taken something from your story, if not everything, today. So thank you so much. No, it was my pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on and giving me a space to be able to to do something with it as well. I really do appreciate that. Um. What's your message to our communities, South Asian communities and Muslim communities, based on your experiences and what you've been impacted by? Just listen. Just just listen. Just take the time to actively listen. And it's not just a community thing, it's to everybody. Just take the time to listen, not to respond, but listen to the words that somebody is saying to you and yeah sometimes we waffle a bit we talk a little bit of nonsense but when you listen to the words that somebody is saying to you when you really hone in on them as well you can get a full understanding of who a person is and how you can help them how you can support them and how you can have better conversations with people and it sounds like such a simplistic thing to say but it it can't be repeated enough don't just speak for the sake of speaking. There's a nice quote by the Buddha, which says that um, 
I'm going to best bastardize this one now, actually, <laughs> which is only speak if what you have to say is more beautiful than the silence. And I think that's very true. Sometimes you can just sit in silence, be quiet, and just listen to what somebody else has to say. It's a very easy thing to do. It's a very powerful thing to do. And it's a very necessary thing to do as well. Shout out your channels. How can people reach you <laughs> at The Delicate Mind once yeah. again? <laughs> sure. Uh, so you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn by just typing in The Delicate Mind. And we will be sorting out, well, our site actually should be launched by this point, which is www.thedelicatemind.org.uk. And we're quite proud of the website because it's basically our first office. So... We have a selection of what our workshops involve, what work that we do, our research, our media that we've done, how you can get in touch with us, and just some signposting resources available for people online. We're going to be adding e-resources as well, so people have something to get actual tangible access to. And we've made sure to make sure that the website can be translated in up to six languages so we can fit in with the BAME community. So you get it in English, Urdu, Hindi, Punjabi, Gujarati, and arabic as well so you're able to get more languages to get a more complete picture and understanding of what we're trying to say as well and it's um yeah we're quite proud of it as well that was nick watt marawat the co-director of delicate mind he was talking to me about his brother shahab who sadly passed away in 2017 what an incredibly difficult and painful story the experience that he's gone through wow I can honestly say they had a profound impact on me listening you know or having a conversation with him and it's one that I'll never forget and I hope that you all take something away from his story and his message shout out to Nick Watt let's all wish him continued success with Delicate Mind all the work that he does around it but most of all Happiness and love, because that's the most important thing. Which brings me to tell you, this is the last episode of Bereavement Room for 2019. It's been a real journey being present with you all. And yes, I will be back in 2020. But in the meantime, I want to wish you all a happy Christmas, a peaceful and safe new year. You tuned into the Bereavement Room. I'm now leaving for a well-deserved two-week nap. I'm your host, Kosima Ali.